Good morning again. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and open to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, we're going to be looking at verses 53 through 72. This is quite a chunk of Scripture. We're going to split it uh, over two weeks. Uh, so today is, is part one, and then next week will be part two. Uh, there are two main points, and, and we'll see that laid out here in our passage. But as you find your way to Mark chapter 14, verses 53 to 72, it's on page 851 in the Pew Bible this morning. We're going to pray, and then I'll read our passage this morning. Father, thank you for that wonderful mystery, Lord, that you saw fit to send your Son to die on the cross for us, for sinners who do not deserve it. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Christ and the salvation that is found in Him and in Him alone. Lord, that salvation, yes, it's a one-time trusting in Christ, but it's a, it's a way of life. It's, it's a living out what we believe. Lord, help us now as we continue to learn about Christ and what He endured leading up to the cross. Lord, the example, the pattern, and the truth that is there for us. Lord, how Your Word teaches and reproves and corrects and trains us, Lord, to live out our faith. We thank you for this. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Mark chapter 14, verses 53 to 72. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you were also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway. And the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. 
This passage, of course, follows the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is a continual march towards the cross. And here in these verses, we read of the trial before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the governing religious and political Jewish body uh, under the authority of Rome. And here, Jesus is before this council. And he is on trial, in a sense. And yet, there's another trial happening out in the courtyard. That's Peter with these guards and bystanders and a servant girl. This section comprises of two courtrooms. One is an unjust, basically kangaroo court of Jesus and these rulers in the middle of the night. And then the other courtroom is Peter in the courtyard with these bystanders. And this, uh, this is one complete idea for how Mark lays it out for us, introducing Peter in verse 54 and then concluding it in verse 72 uh, with Peter ultimately denying Jesus three times. We, we have this picture, these two scenes, these two courtroom scenes, one with Jesus in the Sanhedrin and one with Peter out in the courtyard. And both of them deal with the issue of truth and bearing testimony and being faithful. But the contrast is stark between the two. You have Jesus on one hand who is being unjustly accused and yet remaining faithful. And then you have Peter who's being accused of something that he truly has done, something that is true, and he is denying it, in a sense, bearing false witness against himself. Through these two examples and through the overarching picture of Mark's gospel, of the issue of discipleship, we see this. Our big idea here in this passage is that true discipleship courageously speaks the truth in the face of lies from bold opposition. True discipleship, being a true follower of God, of Christ, means that we courageously speak the truth. And not that we speak the truth when it's easy, when it's convenient, but in the face of bold opposition that are throwing out lies. Standing for the truth, being faithful, being obedient to the gospel, remaining steadfast. In the course of history, a lot of courtroom scenes have looked like this. A, a, lot of, uh, a lot of incidents with believers being under persecution and confronted for their faith has played out similar to this. To Peter being confronted, do you believe this? Do you believe in Jesus? With one answer perhaps resulting in death. And the other answer resulting in abandonment of God. There's one man from history named Pliny the Younger. I'm sure you're all familiar with Pliny the Younger. Uh, he was a governor in Bithynia around 112 AD. And he wrote to the Emperor Trajan, or Trajan uh, of the Roman Empire. And he wanted advice from Trajan about how to deal with the excuse me, depraved superstition that is known as Christianity. The depraved superstition, that's a, a quote from Pliny the Younger about Christianity. And he gives the circumstances. He tells Trajan that those arrested 
and those accused were asked three times if they were Christians. If they admitted it, they were executed. If they denied it, they were required to prove their denial by worshiping images of Caesar and cursing Jesus Christ. And in a quote from Pliny, he said, A thing which it is said genuine Christians cannot be induced to do. From the very beginning, 112 AD, going back to Peter here, Christians are confronted with the fact of, do you believe in Jesus or do you not? Will you remain faithful in the face of bold opposition and lies? Jesus here is faithful. Peter himself, we see how he falls, how he falters. As we look at this section, it's divided into two scenes. We'll look at scene one this morning, which is Jesus and interaction with the Sanhedrin. And next week, we'll look at Peter here. But both of these things connect with the same big idea. So let's look here at the two main sources of these bold lies in opposition. We'll look at the first one this morning, which is this. The world promotes lies over truth. The world. The world promotes lies over truth. As we think of opposition to the truth, to true discipleship, the world is perhaps one of the greatest, if not the greatest, opposition under the influence of Satan against true discipleship. So in verse 53, it says that they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. This is the setting here. This is the Sanhedrin made up of 70 individuals plus the high priest. As I mentioned, this was the ruling authority of the Jewish uh, community. They were given jurisdiction by Rome. So they handled things that pertained to the Jewish culture and nation uh, that Rome necessarily didn't care about. They didn't care about what they did as long as they kept order and stopped any revolts from happening. (laughs) And that gave them freedom, but also limited them in what they could do. But the Sanhedrin was made up of the chief priests, the elders, scribes, these religious leaders. At this point, uh, from other historians, we understand the Sanhedrin was controlled by the Sadducees. Remember, the Sadducees were friendly with Rome. They denied supernatural events like resurrection and miracles and angels. Um, That's who was in charge at this time of the Sanhedrin. And they've come together. And they've arrested Jesus because of his insurrection, his uh, rebellion, basically the trouble that he was causing them. And they take him where? They take him to the high priest's house, which we learn about uh, here and in the other Gospels. Mark is very economic in his description and his words. Uh, if, if you don't have time to maybe read you know, the full extended edition, Mark is a good, succinct Hey, this is, this is the big idea what happened. Uh, Mark is good at that. And that's what he does here. Matthew, Mark and, or Matthew, Luke, and John give other nuances and other small descriptions and evidence and accounts of things. Mark is pretty much straight and to the point. Uh, and so they go here to the high priest, the courtyard of the high priest, to his residence. Verse 54, and Peter follows, which is interesting because we just read how everyone abandoned him, but yet Peter... As much as he's foolish and as much as he, you know, speaks, you know, too big for his britches, he's demonstrating some measure of faith here because he didn't just run away and hide. Here he's, he's following Jesus. It's like, oh, well, 
I, I want to see what happens. So, so Peter follows, and he enters into the courtyard of the high priest. Uh, houses, if it was large enough in these days, would be comprised of four walls, like a square. And oftentimes in the middle, there was an open area, a courtyard, uh, with perhaps gardens, trees, uh, perhaps a fountain, uh, an area to warm yourself. It would still be cool at this time of the year. Servants and guards would be there um, around the fire. And this is where we find Peter. He was in the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards, and he was warming himself. And he was able to see what was happening in some sense. More than likely, there was a large room above on one of the sides of the building where you could see in and hear. Uh, At this point of the night, it'd be rather quiet out, so Peter could witness what is happening. In verse 55, we switch to then the inside of the building where Jesus is on trial. The chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Remember, they've wanted to arrest Jesus for a long time, since chapter 3 in Mark's gospel. And still, they can't find any reason to arrest him, to punish him. It says they were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. They were looking for somebody to give evidence or testimony or witness to the fact that Jesus deserves to be put to death, but they found none. They found none, but that didn't stop them. Verse 56, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Those of you who are parents, and perhaps your children are grown, but I'm sure you can remember when there's an incident happening in your house and you were not present, but you realized something happened, and you walked in, and you said, what has happened here? Now, one child says one thing. What does the other child say? Probably something completely opposite. Oh, that person did this. And then the other child says, no, that's not how it happened. That person did that. Or perhaps you question them individually. You get smart. And you hear one story from one child, and then you ask the other child, and it's a complete other story, right? The evidence and the testimonies do not agree. (laughs) So what actually happened? You don't know, and you can kind of piece things together, and usually as a parent says, it doesn't matter, you're both in trouble, right? We're just going to do it that way. (laughs) Everyone gets the same, same punishment there. Here, they have these testimonies, these witnesses, but none of them could agree. There's a lot of discussion about the Jewish law at this time and, and what that meant and everything. But it, to boil it down, if you have all these different testimonies and witnesses and they do not agree, that should cause the case just to be thrown out. Right? If, if you have several witnesses and they cannot agree on their testimonies, that you don't have any evidence because you don't know who's telling the truth and what's what. But they continued on, verse 57, and some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say this, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now Jesus said something like that. Now I don't think the emphasis that Jesus had was exactly what they were thinking. (laughs) They were thinking Jesus is going to tear down the physical temple. What was Jesus truly speaking about? He was speaking about himself. 
The fact that he would be crucified, he'd be buried, he'd, he'd be raised again in three days. Verse 59, it says, yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Again and again, we see how their testimony does not agree. If this was a fair and just court, this was a fair and just hearing, the, the case would have been thrown out and Jesus would be free to go. If you can't agree upon anything, you don't have any evidence, then it, the case is thrown out. There's no way that you can bring a charge against an individual. But that did not stop this group. For they did not really care about the truth, did they? As the reader of the gospel, you and I understand that they don't care about truth. They don't care about finding out what actually happened. They don't even really care about what Jesus actually said. They were just looking for some small shred of information or incomplete evidence that they could use to bolster the fact that they want to kill Jesus. Anything will do. What can we dig up on this man so that we can sentence him to death? They didn't care about the truth. Verse 60. Now the high priest stands up. Picture this in your mind. Here is Jesus. He's probably standing in the, in the middle of these 70 men or so. And the high priest stands up, perhaps next to him, and confronts the group and says, we've heard this evidence. We've heard this testimony. Now he looks to Jesus. And he says, have you no answer to make? This implies for us that Jesus has been silent. That Jesus has not said anything. That Jesus has just heard all of this and not responded. It's bringing to fulfillment what we read in Isaiah 53. Here he is, the, the, the Messiah, the, the Lamb, this suffering servant, and he's silent before those who will put him to death. He does not strike out in anger. He does not argue his way out, but rather he lets them speak. He is silent. Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? Which is interesting because even in the midst of their false testimony, they are bearing actual true witness to Jesus. They are demonstrating that there's no sin, no corruption in Jesus. And they are reminding people the fact that Jesus has promised that he himself will be crucified buried and raised again, but he remains silent. Again, the chief priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed? Blessed here, of course, is referring to God, the most high. And here we have a response from Jesus, verse 62. And Jesus said, I am. Now, just that statement should bring something to your mind. If you go back all the way back to Genesis, when you have Yahweh, I am who I am, talking with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Jacob's other sons. Then you have Moses before uh, the burning bush, and, and Moses says, who should I say that they sent me? And he says, I am who I am. Tell them, I am, the great I am has, has sent you. And here's Jesus again, implying through his statement, I am, I am 
the Christ. I am the Son of the Blessed. I am God. <laughs> I am the Christ. I am the Son of the Blessed. Now this, this is out of the ordinary for Jesus in Mark's Gospel, right? Because how many times have we read about Jesus doing something and somebody realizing that he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, and Jesus saying, Shh, don't tell anybody. Jesus is, he's done with that. <laughs> he's now saying, I am. I'm the Messiah. I am the Son of the Blessed. Now you've had hints, you've had ideas, but I've been proactive in, in stopping that because my time has not yet come, but now my time is here. And Jesus is saying, this is who I am. There are people who will say, well, Jesus never, never claimed to be God. I don't know how you can read this passage in the Gospel of Mark and say, that Jesus didn't know that he was God or never claimed to be God. It's pretty clear right here that Jesus knew who he was and what he was doing. He says, I am. I am God. Jesus is claiming the fact that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And he says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus, again, quotes, I think, two of his favorite passages from the Old Testament. Psalm 110 and Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is the passage that talks about the ancient of days and the fact that there's a vision of one like the Son of Man coming. The Son of Man is this Messiah, this, this ruler who will execute God's will and his judgment. Hey, that's Jesus. That's why Jesus uses the phrase Son of Man. And then Psalm 110 talks about the Messiah seated at the right hand of the Father. And we read here that he is uh, seated at the right hand of power. This idea, right hand of power, is the idea of, of ruling under the authority of the one seated on the throne. And then the Son of Man coming with clouds of heaven. The idea of judgment. Jesus is saying, I am God. I am the Messiah. I am the one who is seated at the right hand of of the Father, and I'm going to come and I am going to judge you. Though you are judging me right now in this courtroom, I will, the, I will be the one who has the ultimate, uh, the ultimate say. And I'm going to execute my judgment as I see fit, as I come as the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power. Jesus makes this statement. Here is Jesus being put on trial, being set under judgment, when in fact he is the one who is going to come and dispense judgment on behalf of God upon these wicked men. Verse 63, and we see the response of the high priest. He tore his garments. This is the idea of, of exasperation, of agony, of, of being in the face of, of the idea of, of wickedness. And he tore his garments and he says, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. Now, if someone claimed to be God and wasn't God, that is blasphemy. And according to the law of Moses, blasphemy was punishable by death. If you claim to be God and you're not God, that's not a good thing. Talk about the ultimate identity theft here. <laughs> Judgment is severe on someone who claims to be God and who is not. But the thing is, Jesus is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. And so when Jesus claims to be God, he is not committing blasphemy. 
And he has clearly demonstrated that through his miracles and his healings and everything, but yet their eyes are still darkened. They are rejecting Jesus. And they think it's a blasphemy when actually it is the truth. They believe the lies about Jesus and they are promoting lies about Jesus rather than the truth of who Jesus is. The high priest says, what further witnesses do we need? What is your decision? And he turns to the crowd of the Sanhedrin and Mark records that they all condemned him as deserving death. Now we'll see how this is played out through Pilate and the Roman authorities, but the Jews in their governing body, which is meeting in the middle of the night in a very sketchy way, for lack of a better phrase, this was not above board. This was, uh, this was not how it was supposed to be, but yet they expedited the process. They didn't care. They just wanted to deal with Jesus, to get rid of him. And through Jesus' true confession, they condemn him to death. And we see that they already start to mock and to beat him. Verse 65, and some began to spit on him and to cover his face. That idea of covering his face can either be striking his face or they put a bag over his face like you often see in a, in a movie or a show when somebody's a, a, um, a hostage. And when you put a bag over someone's face, you disorient them and you can beat them. You can mock them. You can do whatever you want. So they strike him, they spit on him, they cover his face, and they mock him by saying, well, prophesy, if you're God, prophesy. And this will continue all the way up till his death on the cross. And the guards received him. He was probably put back in his cell. And as they were putting him in his cell, they were, they were sure to throw in an extra elbow or an extra fist. It was, it was not a kind placement or treatment of Jesus back to where they were holding him. The scene plays out. You have the lies of the Sanhedrin and the witnesses and the high priest, and you have the truth of Jesus in his confession. It's not handled well by the high priest. He tears his garments. He, he says this is blasphemy, and they all proclaim that he deserves death. The scene shows us several things. First off, that the rejection of Jesus by the religious leaders is clear and complete. Anytime that someone thinks, well, God didn't give him a fair shake. Here is Jesus standing in the middle of 70 or more learned men who know their Old Testament, who know everything front and backwards. And Jesus saying, I'm God. This is what I've done. This is who I am. And they have clearly and completely rejected Jesus. They are without excuse. They have been set against Jesus for a while, right? Since Mark 3. But the clear rejection of his, him in this trial is the final nail in the coffin, so to speak. They have rejected the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the Son of David, the Son of Man, the Son of God. They are without excuse. Condemnation is going to fall squarely upon them. They have ultimately rejected the one that God has sent. They have denied the truth and have believed lies. Second, as we look at this scene and, and the bigger ideas at, at work here of truth and falsehood, we understand that this idea of telling lies to combat the truth has been happening since the very beginning of time. 
Satan is known as the father of lies. He is called a deceiver. The world, which is his domain to a certain degree, he's the prince of the power of the air, is filled with lies that are used to condemn the truth. Go back to the Garden of Eden. What did the serpent say to Eve? Did God really say? He was placing doubt and lies in the mind of Adam and Eve. And they acted upon that lie rather than the truth. Christianity, in a sense, is a battle of truth versus falsehood. Because truth is truth no matter what. No matter what the world says or what you think. Truth is true. If something is true, it's true no matter what. You can believe all you want about the opposite, but that doesn't make it true. You can believe to your very inner being, to the depth of who you are, that gravity does not exist, but yet you are not floating away. (laughs) Same thing with Jesus. You can deny him all you want, but yet the truth remains. He is who he is. The truth of the gospel is subverted for the convenient lies of the world. Because lies are easy. Lies are easy. Lies cover up difficult things. Lies smooth things out. There's one quote I saw once. It said, lies have speed, but truth has endurance. Lies are convenient. Truth is hard sometimes, but the truth endures. The truth is what matters. And much more than just Jesus Christ, but even the whole foundational creational truths that we have Today, you look at the world, and it's full of lies. Think of everything happening with gender and sexuality and life. When life begins, when life matters. What constitutes a biblical marriage? Of even the very fact of how you live your life. Follow your heart. Do what makes you feel good. Those are all lies that are around us, that can creep into our minds. But yet, these lies are rebellion against God. And at the heart of all those lies is the fact that the truth of God and His love for sinners in Christ is condemned. It's the lie of Satan. Did God really say? Does God really love you? Do you really need a Savior? Yes. For those who might not know Christ here, the Bible is true. You are a sinner. You're accountable to God. God saves us through his son, Jesus. You need to repent and believe or you will be condemned to hell. That is the truth of God's word. That's not being mean. It's not being harsh. That's speaking the truth. But the truth is also there that God loves us, that he sent his own son to die on the cross for us, that while we have rebelled against him, he has made a way of salvation. That's the truth also. And that There's no other way to God except through Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. That's the truth. Whether you believe it or not, you will either end up in eternity with God or in eternity in judgment. You you can't ignore or lie about Jesus and make him go away. You can squelch him. You can... Try and forget about him, but that doesn't mean he's not there and he's not real and he's not true. So the plea is to respond to the truth of who God is and what he's done for us. Who Jesus is. Has Jesus right here faithfully 
follows his father's plan, says, this is who I am. Third, in this scene, we see how Jesus remains resolute and faithful to the truth amid the world's lies. Now, these lies in this section are, uh, are kept to the lies of the religious leaders. But as we take a step back by way of application, implication for us is that the lies are out there. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to remain faithful to the truth no matter what is happening out here. There's another quote. Um, I think it was first used in a way to promote individualism uh, in high school, I think, when I first heard it. But I think it's a good reminder for us as Christians as well that only dead fish go with the flow. Think about it. Only dead fish go with the flow. Only dead individuals go with the flow of the world, with the lies of the world. Whereas people who've been born again, who have trusted in Jesus Christ, we are called to stand resolute and faithful to the truth amidst the current of whatever is going on around us. This faithful example is important. We are called to follow Jesus. We are called to stand for the truth despite the lies that are presented to us. And I'm not talking about conspiracy theories lies, okay? Like Illuminati and the man and, you know, all those things that people spend too much time on YouTube watching. I'm talking about the basic core lies that are out there. The fact that you're okay, that you don't need a sinner or that you're, you're, you're not a sinner or the fact that you can't really trust the Bible. Or the fact that marriage is whatever we want it to be or gender is whatever you want it to be or the plain simple fact that life is about you and you need to be happy. Those are the basic lies that we need to stand up against, that we need to speak the truth of God's word into, but not in a mean-spirited, fleshly way, but in a way that is winsome and loving and caring, saying, you are dead, you are lost, you are foolish, but here is truth, the truth of who God is, what he's done for us, and our need for Christ. We are to hold the truth with a clear conscience, settled on its veracity, on its truthfulness, not looking for a fight, but standing resolutely on the truth of God's word. When you hold to the truth of God and his word, you are not swayed by every single thing that comes across your news channel or by way of information or happenings, but yet you stand resolute. Times change, culture, ideas change, but yet the word of God remains, it says in Isaiah, right? Grass wither, flower fades, the word of God remains. The truth of who God is and what he does remains. So though the world promotes lies over truth, just as Christ here is the embodiment of truth himself, we are called to remain steadfast as his faithful disciples. For true discipleship courageously speaks the truth in the face of lies from bold opposition. So it's important for us to be looking out for those lies in our lives, to taking those lies and measuring them against the truth of God's word. And believer, have hope, have courage. Lies may win for a season, but ultimately the truth of God, of his word, will endure forever. May we be faithful as he is faithful. And may we courageously speak the truth in the face of lies in a world full of lies. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity again to look here at your word and the example of Christ. 
Lord, the fact that he remained faithful and that he himself is truth. He is the truth. He is full of grace and truth, Lord, the one that we are called to look to. Lord, help us remain faithful to him. Lord, to not give in to the lies of the world around us that Satan propagates, that he sugarcoats. Lord, but rather to lean on the truth of you and your word. Lord, help us do so in a loving way, warning others and calling others to heed the truth. Lord, we love you. We pray for all this in your son's name.